Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast for this Tuesday, March 29th. We have a great chatterbox uh, featuring the awesome Selena Cesar Siobhan, uh, joining us former Liberal MP and best-selling author, Anthony Fury, on the show as well. And uh, I talk a little bit about where we're at mental health-wise, things I'm seeing eight days. Feels like a lot more than eight. 28, 48, you decide. Post the mask mandate being lifted in Ontario. We're watching our numbers. We're being careful. I understand being cautious, and I understand also one-size-fits-all health uh, health recommendations didn't terribly work well for a lot of us for 25 months straight. So maybe we should be talking about treatment. Maybe we should be talking about focusing our protection on the vulnerable. Maybe those things. Toronto Today begins now. When I go to the gym, I, I drop my kid off at soccer on Monday, Wednesday nights, and I go to the gym and and see people there, and I see these five- and six-year-old kids walking uh, together, and I used to see them in masks. Um, and I know I have a visceral reaction to this. I know that. So if, if I'm over the average, um, that's okay. If I'm an 8.5 out of 10 for thinking, I'm not sure that the, the cost-benefit 24 months in, of putting masks on five-year-olds for 35 hours a week. Then they go to the gym. They want to exercise. They want to see their friends. They're in an environment where we're all getting to, to you know, I get to run on the treadmill without a mask on. I, people get to power lift. You know, the dude's a lot bigger than me. And some of the women a lot bigger than me that can lift more than me are grunting and, uh, and, and pushing out um, sounds. And they're not wearing masks while they do that. And I think, why, why does a six-year-old have to wear a mask in that environment if we're all kind of in the same place if they're in another corner of the gym uh doing something else so um we've we've moved to and and again we've dropped a lot of the theater of this like we have we get this right like you go into a restaurant you're there your covid is there or it is not a crowded mall covid is there or is it not Okay, but somehow lives are being saved in elementary schools by cloth masks on little kids. Lives are being saved. Okay, I need you to know that. But they're not as important in restaurants or gyms or to go to the Leafs or Raptors game that night. And the next domino to fall, besides universities, which I thought might be the last, is going to be airports and airplanes. How do I know this? Well, that's the conversation point right now. We see this headline yesterday in the New York Post. Mask mandate on airplanes will be lifted next month. Ex-FDA chief predicts. Maybe that's the last stand for you is thinking, I don't want to be on an airplane without a mask on. And you don't have to be. You don't have to be. You can trust the vaccines, which I do immensely. You can trust your N95 or KN95 mask. But there's a certain point in time when the tourism industry has to get back on its feet. Hey, are you putting the economy over health? Well, no, but the economy impacts health. And I think we've seen that transpire over a long period of time. I think it's well documented that that ends up being the case. This deadline, by the way, uh, the mask mandate federally in the United States for federal public transport. So that'd be Amtrak also, uh, similar to Via Rail here. You, it's going to get lifted on April 18th. That seems to be the prediction. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who's brilliant and ran the FDA from for a few years before the pandemic, as a matter of fact, says that's when he thinks it'll lift it. His quote, if we're not in the thick of another wave of BA2 infection in the middle of April, I think they will go ahead and lift that. And look, there were always going to be stragglers here and there. There were always going to be. 
But at a certain point in time, I get, you know, I get a, a message from somebody today. Hey, my wife works in education. First of all, let, I can't thank you enough um, for your wife being an educator. So thank you for that. And uh, many teachers are saying that Coven's running rampant through the schools, but he's, he's being sarcastic with me. At least we can see kids smile again, right? And I'm like, yes, yes, make my, you're allowed, if you want to debate, that's great. But if you want to make my point while you're making your debate, <laughs> okay, I, I'm happy. I need all the help I can sometimes to win arguments. Yeah, restricting other kids' abilities to breathe. The mask does do that. Let's not play games here. And N95 does that. Let's not play games here. Communicate, see other kids' faces by mandating a, uh, a an inner an intervention that has not been proven, not been proven with any hard evidence that qualifies as as efficacy, if you will. Um, it, no, <laughs> I can't. I can't. Who can support that at this point in time? Twenty five months in. Hey, kids, we're going to limit your breathing, limit your communication, limit your interaction, um, make you feel guilty if something goes right. Like, you know, I, I hear parents all the time say, well, my five and six year old complies and they don't mind the mask. Well, when you tell them that grandma might die if the kid doesn't wear the mask, it's amazing what kids will step up to the plate and do. They are resourceful little creatures, aren't they? To a great extent. So this is where it, it ends up being. And I notice this in stores right now. I went into a store yesterday and noticed a couple uh, grocery employees without masks. And I think, okay, here we go. Like they don't feel like the help anymore. And I, I respect a business's decision. You know, there's a pet store that I go into and they require a mask. I'm happy to put one on and accommodate. I'm thrilled to do that. I'd never cause a disturbance in a public place over something like that. If someone asked me to leave, I leave. If someone says put a mask on, I put a mask on. But I would say that I think I'm hearing from so many people that are uh, now telling people that when they, you know, drop their food off or let's say they're coming in to do home renovations. Okay. You, you come into, I, I had a friend of mine message me and he said, two guys came into my condo masked up and I told them they were optional and they were both were thrilled to unmask immediately. That's up to them if they want to do that. That's up to you. It's your apartment. It's your condominium. It's your household. Okay? So, um, and there's a way to do it. And it, it it's not some regulation to come into somebody's house wearing a mask. You just have to tell people, I'm fine if you don't wear one. This seems to be going well so far. I mean, you tell me. You can text me 289-975-1640. You tell me at this point, is everyone's mental health not improving? Is everyone feeling better inside? Think about your heart, your soul, your feelings than eight days ago when, uh, a, you know, a few bullies really tried to, to, to really, you know, talk down to us from the bully pulpit. This will happen and that will happen. And you should feel guilty about this. We got doctors going on the radio talking like everybody's acting like it's Mardi Gras. And then the guy uh, guffaws because he, he knows how full of crap the statement is. It's not Mardi Gras out there. It isn't in the least. There's vulnerable people. I want to look out for those vulnerable people, but I also want to support businesses. People have been crushed. Ontario is not some unique panacea where uh, COVID treats people differently than it does in the 50 states, all of Western Europe. By the way, Thailand's dropping their restrictions today. Thailand, okay? Thailand tried to crush the virus out, tried to take a lot more than 15 days to slow the spread. I mean, we were told at first that masks were worthless in stopping viruses. I didn't believe that. I thought they would help. And then we got told, wear one. Hey, double mask if you feel like it. Oh, that cloth mask, that doesn't work. Get an N95 on. I'll, I'll comply. 
You tell me to wear to wear it, and I will. You give me the option to take it off because I'm questioning the efficacy of it and the effectiveness, and I want to see faces, and I will. Okay? So I'm a rule follower. People are asking me about Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader of uh, Ontario, had a huge maskless rally. Okay? Like, you shouldn't even have to call it that. But that's what his critics are saying uh, over the weekend. The liberals were like, please keep masks on in schools. Kids are scared. Parents are scared. Then you jam thousands of people inside a, a, you know, a hotel ballroom and nobody's wearing a mask. I, like, honestly, tell me, tell me, you're, you're, all you're doing is telling me that you knew you were full of crap from the beginning. And I'm not talking about Stephen Del Duca. I'm talking about people who are going to deal in the reality and science of this. I, honestly, there's a point in time where people have a right to ask questions. They do. I don't have any doubt about the vaccines. If you're hesitant about the three vaccines that are in your system, if you're hesitant that an N95 mask works, I don't know what to do for you at this point in time. But I don't have to behave like you do. I don't have to have the same fears you do at this point, and you don't have to act um, uh, uh, less fearful like I do. You don't have to. You get, you've got vax life protected, severe illness protecting vaccines, one way masks that work brilliantly. You want to wear it on an airplane? Go for it. You don't want to go into big public places? Go for it. All that stuff. And remember, we adapted just fine. I don't give it a second thought that the vaccines we were told would stop transmission and infection. Well, they don't do either of those things, but I don't give that a second thought. We hoped. We really wanted that to be the case. Omicron came and it changed the game. But do they reduce severe illness? Hell yes. Do they reduce the risk of death? Also, hell yes. And that should be good enough for the vast majority of us. It sure should be good enough for five or six-year-olds that have done this two years and want to see each other's faces. We're very pleased to welcome in um, uh, NDP MPP, and she's the uh, child care critic as well uh, for the party and official opposition critic for early learning and child care and the MPP in Parkdale High Park. She is Butila Carpoche. It is great to have you on. Thank you very much. I think this is our first time talking, so thanks for making the time for me. Happy to be here, Greg. You have a very uh, impressive resume as well. Like you have a pub- master's of public health and epidemiology, so you must roll your eyes. The last two years when non-epidemiologists start saying, you know, I read this on the Internet, so I know it's true. You must do that a bit. <laughs> Armchair science. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. My my B.A. in political science impresses no one at backyard barbecues all summer long. I promise you that it doesn't. People aren't they, they tend to move away a little bit. Um, there's a lot of lot of opinion about this particular deal, but I know it's frustrating for parents as well. Um, why did it take so long? Why were we last? Why was Ontario last year, Butila? That's a great question. And it's the question that everybody, including myself, have, you know, why is it that Mr. Ford dragged his feet and signed the child care deal at the 11th hour? We are the last province to sign the deal. The deal is the same deal that was on the table all along. And while families across the country have been getting relief when it has come to childcare costs in Ontario, where parents and families are paying the highest fees in the country, we have been stressed and worried and wondering where is our deal? Well, that's what I wondered about, Butila, reducing it via a percentage. 
is not the same as as raw dollars. We know. Ask any parent. I live out in the suburbs, and when I had my kids in in childcare, I mentioned this on the show yesterday. I would talk to people who lived in Toronto proper, and it was astronomical what they were paying. And I thought I was paying a lot until I talked to them. Yes, that's right. Um, Ontario, as I said, we're paying the highest childcare fees in the country. When you talk to parents, you realize that childcare fees are the size of mortgage payments. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and forget it if you have two; it's just unsustainable. Uh, that is why so many people I talk to in my writing, especially, are paying through the nose. Sometimes two thousand dollars per month yeah. per child, uh, and many are even young people are you know, postponing the idea of having a family simply because it's unaffordable. This was our, our real, I, I said it earlier, step like you step into the batter's box, to use a baseball analogy. And this was our crack because the pandemic has exacerbated this. It's accelerated this. We've talked about the she session on the show before, you know, the she mm-hmm. sessions happen. It's forced more, more women than men back home. It's put it uh, undue and, and considerable pressure on whoever the breadwinner is, whether it's a man or a woman in the household. So it's helped nobody. And this was our chance to get it right. Is there, are there elements of this plan that you say, well, they finally got it right. Well, we finally have a deal. So that is a good thing, because if the deal was not signed by March 31st in, you know, two days from today, we would have lost one point one billion dollars. That that's, you know, direct mm-hmm. money that would go into relief for families when it comes to childcare costs. So thank goodness. And this is really thanks to the hard work and the advocacy by childcare advocates, childcare workers, of course, families who have been putting the pressure on the Conservatives and Mr. Ford to sign the deal before the deadline. So the fact that we have a deal is good. Uh, Of course, it would have been better if it came earlier. Now I am waiting to look at the details of the plan and see, you know, what exactly or how exactly this is going to be rolled out. I'll ask this about long, because uh, I, I, I liken this to long-term care yesterday, only in that we need to pay people living wages to attract the best people. We need to attract those people, Butila. We need to retain those people. That's as important as attracting them. It's one thing to get a good person into a job. If they think, I can't make ends meet, uh, it's too much, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, I'm going to do something else after six months, that's no good. And you know parents want to see familiar faces at their, in, at their daycares and in their childcare spaces. How do we how do we make certain so even if parents get a little bit of a break, how do we make certain early childhood educators uh, we make it worth it for the best people to want to do this year after year as a career? That's a great question, because one of the things that we have to keep in mind is when we talk about the child care system, we're really talking about the workers because it's the workers who provide the care and it's the workers who are doing the important work of raising our children while they are at these centers. Um, And so it's very simple, you know, listen to what the workers are saying in terms of how, uh, you know, what actions we can take to help them do a better job to provide that quality care and for them to, you know, continue to be in the field that they love. And that is provide decent wages. That's very important. We not only have to increase the wage floor, but we also have to be able to provide decent working conditions like paid sick days. You know, it's a no brainer that if a childcare worker is sick, They should be able to stay at home without worrying about having bills to pay. And that would be 
uh, you know, the safe decision for everybody in the center, including the children and families. We need to ensure that uh, they have access to proper, you know, pay when it comes to planning time. You know, they don't get mm-hmm. paid for any of that. They only get paid for the time they're at, the hours you know, that they're the there, right? There exactly. But there's a lot of work and extra effort that goes into that. We need to make sure that they have access to proper scheduling, to, you know, secure full-time jobs, that they have proper benefits when it comes to mental health. That's one thing I've heard a lot because the pandemic has been really hard. Think, Think about it, Greg, like what was the one place that was open when we were in the strictest of lockdowns during the pandemic. It was the childcare centers, the emergency childcare centers, so that frontline healthcare workers could go to work. Uh, you know, yeah. so they have been working throughout the pandemic with no pandemic pay, with no access to mental health support. So they are stretched thin. And unfortunately, this has been going on far too long. They have, you know, it's, the staffing crisis has been a long standing issue. So we really, really need to make sure that we address childcare worker issues when we're talking about childcare, the childcare plan moving forward. Butila Karpoche, uh, our guest, uh, MPP and NDP childcare critic. I got about a minute here. Do you think, do you think getting to that $25, I guess a ceiling we'd call it, is that enough? Is that enough money per hour given the hours that you talk about and we're not paying for, for prep or anything else? It's just, it's the hours that they're there. Is that enough to attract and retrain and retain good people in your mind? So this is the part where I urge the government, and as I have always done, to consult and work with our partners in the sector. You know, I mean, we have seen in many provinces, and this is something, again, we, you know, many workers have been asking, is a wage grid, right? Uh, you know, for people to see that, okay, um, there is a pathway where I can make a certain wage, depending on the number of years I've been, depending on my training and experience, and something that is fair, uh, you know, to their working conditions. So what that wage grid looks like uh, has to be developed in partnership with those frontline childcare workers who are actually doing the work and know what it's yeah. like. It was a pleasure to have you on. I hope we get to talk not just about this issue, but about other ones um, leading up until the election. Don't be a stranger. We, we, we love that you made time for us today. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Greg. You got it. Uh, there's Butila Karpoche, uh, NDP MPP. San Graywall is joining us, uh, publisher of The Pointer. It's great to have you on. Are you a morning person? Am I getting you up early? Is this prime time for you? Yeah, it's pretty much prime time. Um, I'm about two hours into my daily routine already. What is that? Like yoga and stuff? Like what have you... you... Oh, I, w- I wish it was yoga. No, it's fielding calls. Oh, who's calling? Man. Who's calling at 540? You're, you're like that army commercial. You're doing more by... Yeah. What, how do they recruit people in the States? You'll do more by 8 a.m. than everyone does in a day. And I'm like, that sounds terrible. That's not... You're yeah, not getting... Well. You're not incentivizing me to join the army. Yeah, welcome to life as publisher of, uh, <laughs> of an outlet covering 1.6 million people. Yeah, just lots of contacts. You know, I mean, yesterday with all the stuff coming out about well, everything that we're going to talk about, I guess. And yes. So many more things on a local level. So, yeah, we have to get started pretty early in the morning. I hear that. Uh, I'm with you here. Uh, Selena Cesar Siobhan joining us, former liberal MP, author of the brilliant book, Can You Hear Me Now? How I found my voice and learned to live with passion and purpose, which is in lower print than the can hear me now. Can you hear me now part? Because you'd need a lot. That's a wide book. That's almost that's a that's a coffee table book if that happens. Right. <laughs> For sure.
sure. Aren't you going to ask me if I'm a morning person? Because I just cringe just hearing that description. Of, I know you are. I, I I know you are. I figure any. I'm not a morning person. There's no way I'm getting up. When when do you do your best? When do you do your best work? What uh, time of day? When do you when do you peak intellectually? Peak maybe around three o'clock. I'm not. I'm not morning. I can't. I hate it. I don't <laughs> do morning shifts at home. Don't make lunches. <laughs> I used to find well I, I found when I did evenings or when I did I used to do play by play for hockey games and then you're you'd eat dinner before the game but any kind of like big thing you then you're hungry afterwards and exactly. then then if my girlfriend eventual fiance eventual wife was like you realize you're eating two dinners about four times a week I'm like thank you that's I'll take that as a compliment how did you notice <laughs> so so this way I feel like I fast like about 12 hours because you don't eat between like 9 p.m. and 9 a.m. It's one of those weird diets uh, that happens. Well, uh, so let, let's start here, Selena, and talk about Will Smith and Chris Rock. I, I, I know I, I heard all this all yesterday. Listen, with what's going on in Ukraine and what's going on here, should we really be talking? But but it's too we can't help ourselves. We all have an opinion on what we saw. What what on earth has your opinion changed um, since the Will Smith apology? What did you think at the time? And uh, where are we now? Twenty four hours later. So I'm, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach to having this conversation because I'm, I'm tired of talking about it and I, yeah. I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> but we all have a little bit of, no, seriously, Greg, we all have a little bit of Chris Rock and uh, Will Smith and us. We all have made some seemingly innocuous joke at somebody, else expe- somebody mm-hmm. else's expense related to their race, their ability, their gender, and it's called microaggressions. We talk about this in equity all the time. And we all have done it as well. We've all made some bonehead move where as soon as we did it, we were like, oh, my God, like, I can't believe I just, just did that. I think what we should be talking about now, and I think what most people should be talking about, is whether or not they are going to take anything from what they saw on the Oscars and change their own behavior, especially when we know, you know, I'm a senior advisor of equity at Queen's University, mm-hmm. and we talk about the impact of microaggressions. We talk about the impact of these, these jokes that people make at other people's expense, and we need to decide for ourselves whether we're going to change our behavior or not because I'll tell you one thing Greg even after that joke was made yesterday and including today there are going to be millions of people making those same jokes about other people just like Jada was sitting there getting that joke made to her and we need to decide if we're going to do something different whether we're going to be a bystander or not and whether we're going to change our attitudes and behaviors I sure want to come back to you and follow up on that I, I do uh San it, it, I, I I like Selena's point in the sense that you know, it, we we sometimes think about role models and it doesn't matter how we parent. It doesn't matter. You know, we had that Charles Barkley said way back when, don't consider me a role model. And I'm like, he's right. We, we, we shouldn't look to musicians and, uh, and and actors and athletes to raise our kids. They can influence us. The really positive ones can. But we got to do it ourselves. I, I always hear this all the time about controversial issues. What should I tell my kids? I'm like, I don't know. You had them. It's your household. <laughs> Yeah, but I think in this day and age, if, if for anyone who has children, I have two daughters, we all know that more and more we live in a pop cultural world, in a celebrity-obsessed world, and all these celebrities and the industry that orients itself around all of that attention, all the revenue that's made, the profits that are made, uh, and these young people who follow these celebrities very closely, and the celebrities get you know sponsorships, they get paid millions of dollars to accept those sponsor- sponsorships to take on that role, whether they like it or not. 
you know, if you don't want that role, then don't take everything that comes with it. And one of the things that comes with it is this incredible influence you have, particularly over young people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's just a fact. I mean, we live in an incredibly media, celebrity, pop culture obsessed world nowadays. And, and I think we need to have some conversations about what the rules, you know, in that world should be. It's interesting. So yeah, it sounds right. But I would say when I was a kid, like, let's take all three of us back to when we were kids and, and we think about what influenced us. Well, I loved going and watching, you know, Eddie Murphy movies. But I did know at age 11, I'm like, I can't say some of those lines. I can maybe say them in the schoolyard. And we didn't even know then that, that we needed to tidy that up and we needed to evolve that language. But I'm like, I can't go and say that in front of adults. I can't say that at the dinner table. I can't say that in my grade six class. And so right. I, I think we've always had those sort of cultural influence. I mean, John Lennon said, hey, I, we think we're a more popular band than Jesus right now. And people burned his. This is before social media. They burned his records. They tried to cancel John Lennon in the 60s. Yeah, you know what? And even after last night, um, uh, sorry, the Oscars, Mm. last night at the dinner table, you know, I have a a 22-year-old, a 17-year-old, and a 13-year-old, and we had a conversation about what we saw, what went down, because it was all over to to that point. It was all over social media. You Mm -hmm. could not miss it. My kids couldn't miss it. But we talked about it, and we talked about what it means and where, where both went wrong, and what the impact is for our everyday lives. And I, I think that's where, you know, the parenting comes in. That's where um, that sort of uh, refining or that judgment calls of how you raise your kids. The challenge here is, to the point, is that some people don't have the capacity to sit and have a conversation with their parent. And they think that that behavior was okay. If there were some adults, some continued mm-hmm. celebrities who said, well, Will Smith was right and Chris was just a joke. And, you know, th- these conversations need to be had. They need to be had responsibly. And, and to the point, the, the celebrities or the so-called celebrities need to be a little bit more accountable for their actions. And last night, Will did um, apologize publicly to Chris and to, to everybody else. So there's something to be said. Yes. And I, I think we all know how we'd react if we, we'd all react like feral animals if someone came into our house or or threatened our very fabric of, uh, uh, you know, of, of our of our loved ones our parents, our wives, your daughters, my sons, we'd all react. That's not what that was last night. And I, I'm still a really surprised. Like, I think we all think I can get angry. I can, you know, stomp out of a room, but I'm never going to hit somebody because of what I'll, a it's wrong and B it's what I'll lose. It's what I'll, it's what I'll give up. And celebrities just look at this Kanye Pete Davidson, like celebrities just don't seem to have that, have that, um, have that reflex to say, Oh, what happens if I do this? That, that guy had no reflex whatsoever about, implications or concerns Sunday night when he did that. Yeah, pretty entitled, <laughs> pretty entitled response. I mean, if I did the same thing, everything I was denigrated or attacked by all the people that, you know, I've covered my journalism career. Yeah, I would have been thrown in jail a long time ago. You know, and I think I think it's one of those mm-hmm. things where with what I mentioned before, we don't really understand to what extent do these celebrities once they attain that status, the type of status that Will Smith has, to what extent do they act sort of above and beyond, you know, what most of us have to abide by? Like, you know, the, the type of you know, social conduct, the type of, you know, personal mm-hmm. conduct, whether it's in the house and in the workplace with friends, you know, out in the public that most of us have to live by. Are, are those types of standards, even if they're informal, 
are, are they applied on celebrities? Like we see, like, you know, if you take a look at, I, I don't want to name names, but if you take a look at what, uh, thanks to social media, we know a lot of celebrities do right out in public, you know, to their partners, to members of the press, even to sometimes uh, towards so-called fans. It, it, it's appalling. But nine times out of 10, they eventually get a pass. You're right. I mean, we went, uh, look, I, I I love boxing. We I sat there, watched that Robin Gibbons interview when I was like a teenager where she's like, oh, you know, Mike Tyson sitting right next to her. They're talking to Barbara Walters, Selena, and he's yeah. like, he does this. He frightens the the bajat. And you're looking at Tyson yeah. going, I, and I'm going to do it after this interview's over because I can't believe you're saying this. Floyd Mayweather, right? We've championed this guy. I, I, I feel guilty when I bought one of his fights before. So we wrestle with this all the time in our universe with, um, with, with the people our kids admire and the people that we've grown well, up admiring. You know, Greg, I'll give you an example. You mentioned John Lennon. Yeah. Um, I love the Beatles, but go and research, you know, John Lennon's problems with misogyny. The very public yeah. statements that he made, you know, facts about how he treated, you know, certain women in his life. No one ever talks about that because we love John Lennon and the Beatles. Yeah. And what, and what has really changed the fact that Will sat through the entire Oscars and was not removed. So the point has been made mm. many, many times that they get a pass. There was so much more I wanted to get into, but we're right out of time. You guys were amazing today. We, I mean, I, I, I like drilling deep on that one big thing. Thank you for doing this. I hope we get to chat again and for longer next time. For sure. Awesome. Thank you, Selena. Thanks so much. Uh, No, absolutely. It was great having both of you on today. That was uh, Sam Graywall and Selena Cesar Siobhan. Russia, Ukraine meeting right now, early afternoon. First meeting in over two weeks. Let's bring on Marcus Kolga and talk about it. Marcus uh, from disinfowatch.org. Nobody better on the Russian front. He did a great interview with Kelly yesterday uh, on the show, and he's making time for on uh, the Kelly Cotrera show, 9 to noon, and he's making time for us this morning. Um, Vladimir Zelensky said, uh, you know, he he said he needs more. He he says we are not pulling our weight right now. Um, where do we stand on that? And where do we stand on his activism, his asking for more? He thinks the West is still being delinquent in helping out. Where is this? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, here's a president who has, you know, performed miracles uh, over the past five weeks. Um, you know, when you and I first talked at the end of February, um, there was scant hope that Ukraine would be able to hold out, that they could hold Kiev for more than three days. We're in week five right now. And so he's, you know, again, he's he's done so much heavy lifting. He's brought together the Ukrainian people. He, in many ways, is responsible for the miraculous defense of his country. He is getting exhausted. He's He, he needs more help. Um, if, if we want to stop this, he wants to stop this. If we want to help him in stopping this, it means that we need to step up our game. He's absolutely right. We need to find the courage um, to work within the UN and NATO to secure those humanitarian corridors, to make sure that the bombs stop dropping on those civilians. Um, you know, I think he's he's trying to make sure that his people are able to flee cities like Mariupol um, and, and others, Kharkiv and such. Um, that means we need to send more, more weapons. We need to send... Uh, uh, anti-aircraft systems, uh, anti-tank systems, more of those uh, to help uh, Zelensky in that fight and his and those brave U- Ukrainians who are defending the country. Um, if we're not going to send any troops, 
And I think that we need to start considering this as well. Um, you know, sending, whether it's Canadian sending troops or working within NATO, working with a coalition of, you know, of the willing, as we have in many other conflicts, maybe it's not in NATO, but working with others to ensure that uh, those Ukrainian civilians uh, who are seeking to flee do are able to do so in safety. Because right now, Vladimir Putin has demonstrated that he has no problem. Uh, there is no low that he will stoop to. He will target those civilians. He will target those refugees who are fleeing. They need support from us. They need um, our, our weapons. But more importantly, they need us to stand up and uh, ensure that those uh, those refugees and civilians are safe. Marcus Kolga is our guest. It's Infowatch.org uh, on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. I mentioned a stat um, Friday um, that I found uh, and, and it was sourced out. And then I saw I saw it got mentioned on George Stephanopoulos' Sunday morning show, and I couldn't believe it. And it's the... Uh, the the number of deaths of Russian generals is equal so far to all the generals the United States lost in the Vietnam War, which lasted a decade and it didn't go yeah. well. I couldn't. I was staggered by that number. And for clarification, the United States has had one uh, general or rank above killed um, in either Iraq either time, either in ninety one or two thousand three, and in Afghanistan. Like these are rare events, and in five weeks, so. I mean, when we talk about morale of the Russian soldiers, morale of the other Russian military yep. leaders, he's he's obviously swapping people in and out of his, uh, you know, a, a, of his close knit presence because um, there's a lot there's an element of, of distrust and paranoia. I, I can't yep. even believe what a normal 20 year old conscripted into the military thinks uh, when they get tapped on the shoulder and say, sure, turn to go to Ukraine now. I mean, I know they're getting fed their own information, Marcus. But there yep. must be, you know, they must read the tea leaves to some extent and think this is a bad situation I'm going to. And, and there's and there's probably no coming back from it. Yeah. I mean, these young Russian conscripts, uh, these reservists and such were being sent to the front. They're, they're being sold a completely different bill of goods. Things are going as planned, uh, according to Vladimir Putin, if you were to listen to Russian state media. But these kids are getting to the front and they're, they're seeing the carnage. Um, they're being told to shoot uh, families, children, yeah. uh, elderly people. Uh, they're, they're being told to destroy uh, c- civilian infrastructure, apartment buildings, homes, tr- churches, uh, schools. Um, and, and you're right. The morale is, is quite low. They're, the logistics, uh, it's a logistical nightmare for the Russian army. They're unable to get food and weapons to, to the front at this point. And there was a report over the weekend that a group of uh, Russian soldiers uh, just north of Kiev had actually abduct, abducted a colonel pinned them to the ground and taken a tank over them. Um, so they, they killed their own colonel, morality, right? They killed their own colonel. Right. So they're, they're actually in open revolt over what's going on. So, yeah, I mean, things are, things are not going uh, as planned for Vladimir Putin. Things are actually going, going uh, quite poorly at this point. My fascination with the Soviet Union, I know we've talked about this, you know, it probably stems from sports. It's growing up as I'm way too young for 72. You are too. We, uh, we should uh, pat ourselves yeah. on the back for, uh, that we look so young. So nobody <laughs> would mistake that. But either way, um, you know, they, they grow up and they're our arch rival in hockey. And then we boycott their Olympics. They boycott Los Angeles. And then it's how how Soviets, how the Soviets were viewed in pop culture. It's really ironic in that Canada is now qualified for the World Cup to go to Qatar, uh, and yeah. the last World Cup was in Russia, and the last time we were in the World Cup, we played the Soviet Union in soccer, not hockey. You must be just shocked. The last time there was a World Cup, there's Russia, there's Vladimir Putin. He's shaking hands with France, the winning team. He's at the game. He's seen with other dignitaries, right? 
having some yeah. soda in the, you know, in the suites and whatnot. And it never again, like it, it just, you must still sort of fi- find it hard to, to realize though, in, in a way, you, you know, I think people like yeah. you predicted this kind of reality when it hits you, when it realizes there's just, there's no way back for Russia either, you know, into our culture, playing in the world juniors, being in the Olympics, like these things might be, I don't know, for you and I, a lifetime away. If not, they're a few decades away, aren't they? Well, I, that's a good question. You know, after 2014, when when Vladimir Putin invaded Crimea, I thought, you know, maybe that was it. Maybe that was the moment that we were going to stand up to Russia. Um, and, you know, after all these Olympic, the the Sochi doping scandal, I, you know, I thought that that would, you know, um, you know, make the world wake up as far, you know, the sporting world at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't, you know, I think that, you know, we went back to, it took us a year. Uh, everyone was shocked that, you know, he invaded Crimea, he invaded Eastern Ukraine, he shot down his missile, shut down a Malaysian Boeing 777 airliner. Um, and we were back to business as usual, like within a year. But ensuring that there's a consequence, there's a cost uh, for for this sort of, for a barbaric invasion like this, ensuring that Russia doesn't get to host, you know, major international uh, sporting events. I think that's something that, you know, I, I hope that the the international community holds them to and holds them to account with, 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 uh, you know, by banning these sorts of events. Marcus Kolga is our guest bringing it on uh, Toronto today on 640 Toronto. When I see this um, about Abramovich allegedly being poisoned alongside two peace negotiators from the Ukraine, Marcus, I, I like, I thought I'd overslept or hit my head in the tub or something like that. Like this, this story adds a whole nother, what, what is the owner of Chelsea football club or the old owner of Chelsea football club, doing it at a peace negotiation table with senior members of the Ukrainian team. Why is he there? Uh, Well, that's a really good question. Um, You know, Abramovich does wield a hell of a lot of influence when it comes to Vladimir Putin. You know, we've talked about this before. He was, it's reported that he was, he was the oligarch who nominated Putin to succeed Yeltsin in, in 98, 99, somewhere in that time frame. So that, you know, uh, through that and through all these years, he's remained very close to Putin. I suspect that this the sanctions, in part, probably motivated him to, uh, you know, to maybe take the initiative to look for an end to this this war mm-hmm. and a way to get out of this um, and to get himself off those sanctions lists. Um, you know, this story about him being poisoned. Um, is it credible? It's hard to say whether it's true or not. I mean, uh, has he earned the sympathies of some people in the West, perhaps through this? I'm not sure that a lot of people believe it, but you know, we'll mm. see the see what the outcome is. If he is actually continuing to uh, advocate for a peaceful, or not a peaceful end, uh, just an end to this this violence, uh, and is able to speak to Vladimir Putin, well, that's that's great. Hopefully, he'll 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 do that and and bring an end to this conflict. Mm. Last thing for you. Have we all cooled on the prospect of a no-fly zone? This is still something Zelensky has really stopped pushing for this in the last 10 days. Um, I still see some Ukrainian politicians saying because of how things are escalating, because there's more attacks uh, from the air, maybe it's more necessary than it was three weeks ago. Does this still feel like this is the absolute last thing NATO will do? They'll do anything else but that over the next uh, over the next period of time? It's entirely possible. I, I, you know, I think that it's still critical that we secure those humanitarian corridors. Um, there is a an ongoing and a massive stream of refugees that are fleeing Mariupol right now. 
Um, those that aren't able to get out of Mariupol are a lot of them are there's there's reports of abductions by the Russian army. Uh, something like forty thousand uh, Ukrainians have so far, according to reports, been um, been taken to against their will to to Russia. Um, so securing those those corridors, I think that remains essential. Um, is a no-fly zone off the table probably for the time being, but those uh, those corridors. Securing those is something that NATO should be looking at. The UN should be, in fact, looking at that. Hmm. Marcus Kolga, uh, disinfowatch.org, uh, and uh, so kind with and generous with your time. Again, there's there's nobody we'd rather uh, go to um, for the straight stuff on this. Thank you so much for making time for our audience. Anytime. Thanks for having me on, Greg. Promised these numbers earlier. I dug them out uh, last night, and I wanted to uh, give them to you on Alberta. Do this from time to time. Alberta, okay, lifted uh, their mask mandate for schools February 14th. They did it everywhere for uh, stores and whatnot March 1st. So they've had four weeks of that, six weeks of no masks in schools. Hospitalizations were 1,457 on February 14th yesterday, and they only update things once a week now. So in the last week, 956. They've dropped 500 hospitalizations. Uh, ICU. 124 was the number COVID related, therefore, or uh, as a result of or incidental of 124. That's less than half of what it is now. They've dropped 68 ICU beds that are COVID related down to 56. Um, I like sharing good news. I don't know whether we'll have those kind of numbers. Here's what I do know. Alberta's still far less vaccinated than we are by about 12 percent with two doses. Okay, so these are numbers. These are data. You can feel how you feel. You can emote how you want to emote. I sure have in the last two years and i've been far from perfect far from right all the time obviously but um but i remember the last time that um uh, that i spoke to uh um that uh peter uni graced me with uh, his presence the common man the ordinary joe that i am and and he you know came down with his tablets of knowledge from mount olympus and he said we're gonna get crushed by delta and i said well w- alberta is right because he referenced alberta and i said we're more vaccinated right now and we're not opening up as much as them but but that didn't i couldn't convince him it's weird how that worked itself out um so there's there's a lot there's a lot that's there and when i look at some of the timelines of this stuff too Toronto's Board of Health will ask province to make COVID vaccines mandatory for students. John Tory, Eileen DeVille wanted to do that before there was any real world data in uh, late September. The Ontario Liberals wanted only vaccinated people to go to LCBO and cannabis stores. Not six months ago, not four, two. This story is January 25th, 2022. Let me bring on Anthony Fury right now. When I give you those dates, that's unbelievable that eight weeks ago we were taking polls. Should we tax the unvaccinated? Should we stop people from going into stores, um, LCBO stores, cannabis stores? Um, and and this is where we're at now. We're dropping mandates for universities in the next five weeks. I, that, I thought that would be the last domino to fall. Yeah, Greg, I mean, I think those examples you give just seem to be us being seized by madness in terms of can we do more, the inertia on do more, do more, do more, whatever the rationale, the logic, the reason, the common sense, we just got to do more. And you bringing up comparing to Alberta, one thing that's always frustrated me is in Ontario, uh, normally we're pretty worldly cosmopolitan people. We, we pay great attention to the details of, I don't know, Supreme Court justice nominations in the U.S., but we won't pay close attention to the details of what's going on in U.S. jurisdictions with COVID, where we're making momentous decisions to restrict our liberties. And the facts have shown that uh, whatever the jurisdiction in the U.S., North, South, Democrat, Republican, they've been doing things much sooner than us, and, and the sky hasn't fallen. 
why we couldn't learn from best practices. You know, we've talked about lifting the mask mandates mm-hmm. and people talk about it as if we are the first place in the world to do it. When in truth, we're one of the last in her part of the world. Thailand, another headline today. There's Thailand, April for, or May 1st, rather, they will drop all COVID restrictions. They were a zero COVID policy country, Anthony. And well, and for well over a year, they rolled with COVID zero right through alpha, right through Delta. I guess the biggest question is, why do Thai, why do politicians in Thailand want to be premier of Ontario? I think that's worth asking. Why do they want that? Yeah, of course. And, you know, Doug Ford being, oh, so partisan, all of this. It's all about his election. Meanwhile, as I always say, the, one of the most balanced uh, managed provinces in the country is the only NDP province in Canada, British Columbia. And I've always said, why can't Andrew Horvath say, be more like the NDP and, and follow those back best practices? It's frustrating. Um, it, I feel like it's low-hanging fruit, but I'm going to ask it. A lot of people made a fuss uh, about Stephen Del Duca hosting a huge rally inside mm-hmm. a hotel ballroom. Um, he, you know, he, we we had an interview about seven weeks ago. He's like, I don't get why you don't want to, you know, give your teenage boys a a, a third vaccine, and I, I don't, and I haven't, and uh, and he didn't want masks to be taken off kids in schools uh, back in mid February. I don't want to say it's the whole, you know, rules for thee, but not for me thing. But boy, that's a quick pivot. Six, five, six days after the mask mandate gets lifted. Yeah, no kidding. It was something there. And I say, well, good on them, because, you know, if they're vaccinated, which I'm sure pretty much all of them are. And, uh, you know, if they're aware of of the good news of, uh, you know, the treatments that are out there and how, as I said, every other jurisdiction in North America is doing fine. Of course, they should have a campaign event where uh, people are choosing not to wear masks. It's just that simple. I, I had to chuckle at the madness of it all because I think people who aren't plugged into social media, aren't plugged into the 24 hour news cycle. They're just out there living their lives. Uh, having a good time. Some people they know have had uh, a mild COVID experience, thankfully. Maybe they know one or two people who had a rough ride of it. That's unfortunate. We wish those people well. Life moves on. But it just doesn't for uh, uh, some people just obsessed with Twitter, obsessed with the fear. Uh, there's there's some medical folks out there who are really trying to still continue to ramp up the fear on all of that. And Del Duca is, is a bit caught in that rabbit hole right now. And he's, he's you know, like, like the animal, like the rabbit trying to dig up. And, and then the foundations of the uh, the sand wall or caving in as he does it. He's stuck in there. He's trying to jump out. And I wish him good luck getting out of there. Anthony Fury is our guest from Toronto. I, I do I do worry we've lost our way with the idea of boosting. I do worry um, mm-hmm. numbers don't climb uh, for 60 plus and for 50 plus as well is a really small number. So I'm worried. Now, some people say, well, that's because, you know, Doug Ford wouldn't change the definition of fully vaccinated. And then that would have made a lot of um, two vaccine passports useless in the fall when and again, I was for the passports, for the mandates for all those months, um, but it was only meant to be for a brief period of time. It sure wasn't meant to be 10, 11 months. Uh, uh, can we do more in terms of campaigning and getting messaging out there? I, I worry that there's an anti-vax, you know, um, group that Doug Ford doesn't want to doesn't want to step on their toes in the next three months. Can I make that case? Yeah, but at the same time, I think the the argument that everything must be mandatory, you can't at all dare suggest that a person should have personal choice. That's if anything increased hesitancy, because people go, why are you nagging me so much about this, bullying me so much about so obsessed with just give me space, give me breathing room. I think that also backfired a little bit because we see when it comes to personal choice, let's talk about mask mandates. We've left the mask mandate and I can't speak for all of Ontario, but I know in my part of Toronto, uh, most people still wear it. I've gone into stores. Mm-hmm. I'm the only person not wearing the mask. So just give people the breathing room. I, I really wish one of the most facetious lines that I, I've grown frustrated with is public health guidance 
public health recommendations. These ain't recommendations. If you didn't follow through with this stuff, you'd be booted out. You'd lose your job. Maybe, you know, you'd be, the cops would be called on you if you didn't wear the mask at a certain point. They're not recommendations. It's a gun to the head. And I, I, I think, why don't we move more towards recommendations? If there's a doctor who thinks people should still wear masks, then say why you think people should wear masks. Don't say why people need to be forced to do it. Don't argue about the mandate. Just argue about the masks themselves or encourage people to get the booster. I mean, that's traditionally what the what the patient-doctor relationship was. It was uh, ad- advice that uh, gave people breathing room that one could all respect. Well, we got a minute here, but that's my struggle is, is the idea. Look, if my parents in their mid-70s had only the two shots, I'd be calling them every day saying, I'm recommending that you get the third. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I do look and I go, maybe not everyone. I, I know you know this is as conscientious and as data driven as I am. So they they get panicked. Well, the vaccines like you've got to trust the vaccines. And if you if you've got your three shots and you've got your N95 mask and you can wear that anywhere and all you need to do is Google one way masking. Oh, my goodness. Just do some reading and all that fear just just sifts off. It, it'll fall off your shoulders like water. No, absolutely. And it's frustrating that, that we've been so blunt with everything. Cause that's what turn people away. I mean, one thing I'll, I'll leave us with, so much of the fear about dropping the mask mandate is in the retail outlets. I remember writing the feature over a year ago that says Ontario data shows only 0.1% of COVID transmission is traced to retail outlets. Dr. Tam, that she's been telling us from the beginning, prolonged close contact, 15 minutes or more. That doesn't happen in the Home Depot. That doesn't happen no. in the Loblaws. That's just not where people are picking up the virus. No, and I, I don't know how you could advocate that. Well, you, there's a lot of people who hammered Doug Ford saying small businesses should stay open. You're giving the breaks to the big box stores. Keep right. those small businesses open. Well, then you, you can't be for the mask mandate in those small businesses now. Like if you're following the data at some point, then you can't just drop it when it's politically convenient for you. You can't do that. Yeah, following the data and, and giving people the respect to make their own choices. Anthony, thanks so much for the time. We'll talk soon. All the best. Well, thanks for making it to the end. Really appreciate that. Uh, Toronto Today will be back with a live show tomorrow on the 30th of March on uh, Wednesday as we head towards the month of April. I can't wait. I think April is going to be fantastic for you, me, and the vast majority of everybody out there. Appreciate you listening. You can hear us live tomorrow on the Radio Player Canada app or on 640toronto.com or wherever you can hear AM640. Thanks very much for listening.